Let us now open our Bibles to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Isaiah chapter 53. What a blessing it is that we have gifted people to help live stream into our homes at this time in which we are dealing with this pandemic but also what a great day it will be when we can all gather together, hopefully soon, under one roof for the worship of the living God. Isaiah 53. I will be reading this chapter from the authorized version this morning. Will you pray with me before we read? Our Father and our God, we come to this great 53rd of Isaiah, and we ask that we would see the depth of our sin and the greatness, the infinite greatness of God's grace that pardons and justifies through the blood of the Lamb. We pray, Heavenly Father, that our lives will never be the same for having worshiped together this morning. We ask that children and those in middle age and those who are old, who are lost, would come to know Jesus in the hearing of Isaiah 53, read and proclaimed this morning. We ask that the people of God who have fed upon this chapter for all of these many years, some of them very old and having read it until it probably is almost in tatters in their Bibles, will benefit deeply, wonderfully, from contemplating the sacrifice of our Savior. And we are thankful that our Savior set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem and entered on Palm Sunday into that city so that he might give himself a ransom for many. And now, Father, may we contemplate the reason that he came and the great thing that he did when he went to Calvary to die for our awful sins. And as we anticipate Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, may our minds and hearts' attention be drawn more to this than to the news that comes over televisions and radios. May we always remember that our Savior did this for us and may it inform how we look at the world and all things. And may we have a Christian mind and a Christian world view that is based upon the sovereignty of God, the revelation of thyself in Holy Scripture. And we ask that that Scripture now will be open to our hearts by the illumination of the Spirit of God. For that we plead and pray and ask in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word as we stand and read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And I am getting reports from people. Uh, We dress for worship, we come, we stand, we read together, we do everything that we do in public worship even through live stream when we are at home. I thank God for that. The 53rd of Isaiah. This is the word of God. Who hath believed our report? 
and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. But let us read again verses 4 through 6. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, sinful, proud man thinks that the word of the cross is foolishness. 
Only those who believe find in the cross the power of God unto salvation. The book to which I ask you to turn your attention this morning, the book of Isaiah, is one of the most glowing and eloquent in all of the Bible. It is redolent with gospel truth. It is the prophecy of Isaiah the son of Amoz who prophesied in Judah in the 8th century BC during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This 53rd chapter of Isaiah is part of the suffering servant portion of Isaiah. That portion begins in chapter 42, verse 1, with the words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Chapter 50 is pointedly about the suffering of the suffering servant of Jehovah. There we read, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. But the 53rd chapter is even more explicit and more detailed. It is true of the Bible that the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new, but this passage almost breaks that rule. Isaiah 53 is an explicit reference to the substitutionary atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the clearest reference to the sufferings of Jesus in all of the Old Testament, Psalm 22 coming behind. Martin Luther made the statement, there is indeed in all the writings of the Old Testament no plainer text nor prediction both of the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ than in this chapter. Therefore, all Christians should be well acquainted with it, yea, even know it by heart. Now think of it, think of it. An 8th century BC prophet, by divine inspiration, these words are written, clearly portraying the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And all attempts to find the reference in some other person fail. No one can bear the weight of Isaiah 53, the description found here, except the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the broader context is this. Verse 1, I am convinced, this is older exegesis, but I think it is best. Verse 1 should be interpreted in light of chapter 52, verse 7, which reads, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And so verse 1 who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, is interpreted in light of 52.7, which is quoted by Paul in Romans 10 in relation to preaching. And in verse 1, we find here, in light of chapter 52, verse 7, the prophetic setting forth of the role of the apostolic preachers of the cross, who having preached the cross, gone forth to preach the cross, asked this question, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
Verse 1 then is a prophetic complaint of these preachers, a calling out to God for blessing upon the preaching of the Word. And verses 2 and 3 may well be believing Jews speaking of their, their previous unbelief. The Jews had expected a Messiah who would immediately usher in universal peace and prosperity, but the description of the Messiah in verses 2 and 3 is different. Look at it. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And this crucified Savior has ever since been an offense to the Jew and to all men born only of the flesh, because you must be born again. And only those born again will see in these words the power of God unto salvation. Our text begins with the affirmation that the Jews should have believed in the servant and that he was, first of all, the sin-bearer. And so this is what we first see, the sin-bearer. Verse 4, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Surely, certainly, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And there are two descriptions of the work of Christ as the sin-bearer. He bore, or the word can be translated, took up, and he carried our sins. And both of these terms are used in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Both terms underscore that his sufferings were voluntary. Jesus the Messiah bore and carried our sin. The contrast is between he and us. He was laden with our sins. And in passing, let me mention that this verse is grossly misinterpreted by charismatics, who, because in Matthew 8, 17, these words are applied to the healing ministry of Jesus, assumes that God wants everyone who is sick to be healed, or certainly every Christian to be healed. But that is a misapplication of the text. The point of Jesus' healing ministry is to point ahead, to show the kingdom has come, and to point ahead to its consummation in which indeed healing will be through the atonement because every, every disease and sickness will be done away. But it is a misapplication to say that that applies to our viruses and sicknesses today. But to go on, yes, yet those who saw him suffering were revolted by him and esteemed him not. But the startling thought is that the griefs and sicknesses he bore were our sins, griefs, and sicknesses. We have every reason as we read the passage indeed to be revolted not by him, but by my sin which he carried. Surely, of a certainty, he did this. 
And the point of verse 4 is made plain in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He did not suffer for his, he had none, not for his transgressions, but was, and this is the second thing we see, he was the substitute for sinners. That's the point of verse 5. Now, there are three descriptions in verse 5 of this substitutionary atonement. First of all, his sufferings were penal. Now, young people and, and, and children who may be listening in on this sermon this morning to say it's penal simply means that it's punishment. He was punished for my sins. He died for our sins, our crimes against the law of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. And so when we sing often the words, was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. We are actually singing a summary of what verse 5 tells us, that his sufferings were the punishment for our sins. But also as the substitute for sinners, it is directly and strongly spoken of as substitutionary, vicarious, substitutionary. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. As E.J. Young put it, our transgressions demanded wounding because God is just. Now, it's very interesting to think of how the world thinks of the blood of Christ, and especially that part of the world that claims to be Christian but is not. For you see, if you look at the history of liberalism, you find, for example, with the old Sassanianism, and then with Unitarianism, and then with the liberalism of the early 19th and into the 20th century, which still exists in various forms today, there is a recoil from the whole idea of substitutionary atonement. They recoil from the whole concept of the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of blood is an offense to them. Indeed, this reference to blood, there is one very well-known liberal of the early uh, 20th century who made the statement that he would not have a religion of blood. He would not have a slaughterhouse religion. But people of God, Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood is no remission. The shedding of the blood of the Son of God is essential that He die in our place as our substitute. Otherwise, you and I are still in our sins and would be lost forever. James Henley Thornwell said it so wonderfully. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement is unquestionably an ultimate principle in the moral government of God. In the scheme of redemption, God visits the transgressions of sinners in the person of the Son. 
The law executed in its utmost rigors, and God is just in justifying all who believe. Their sin has been as truly punished as if they themselves had been consigned to the darkness of hell. That is the good news of the substitutionary work of Christ, that for the people of God for whom he died, their sin has been as truly punished as if they themselves had been consigned to the darkness of hell. And all of this because the substitute for sinners, his sufferings were propitiatory, and we find that here as well. Now again, remember, children, the term propitiation is a term that should be in your vocabulary, and it means to remove wrath or to satisfy the justice of God, to remove wrath to satisfy justice. The old theologians used to call the atonement, the work of the Savior on the cross, the satisfaction of Christ. And I wish we still retained that language because it underscores what we find here in Isaiah 53, that his work was propitiatory. In other words, his sufferings atoned for our sins and brought about peace with God. Look at verse 5 again. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. How do we have peace with God? The only way that we can have peace with God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 13 through 17, just to give you an example of this in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 13 and following. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who are afar off, and to them that were nigh." In similar passages, Colossians 1, 20 and 21, but the point is that the peace could only come about by the satisfaction of divine justice and the removal of wrath, and this only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, 24 and 25, we find the pinnacle explanation of this in which Paul the Apostle says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Therefore, when you have faith in His blood, that is, when you trust in Christ as your Savior, you also know and experience the truth and reality of wrath removed in that cross 
even within your very heart and soul, so that our peace is described as healing in this passage, which is a figure for the blow dealt to our sin. For example, in Isaiah 30, verse 26, the Lord bindeth up the breach of His people and healeth the stroke of their wound. It's a description of our sin. Having sinned against God, the price must be paid, and Jesus paid it all. We know peace because He knew wrath and satisfied divine justice, drinking the cup of the wrath of God down to its bitter dregs. Now once at the end of the ages has He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Can you hear as you contemplate these things? Can you hear the heart-rending cry of your Savior? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would the Son of God cry out those words? The answer is because in those few hours upon the cross, he was bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Do you know him? Have you trusted Christ? Do you know this sinless substitute for sinners? Children listening by live stream, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You need a Savior. There is no other way that you can be right with God, no other way to be just in His court of law, no other atonement for sin. And hear the wideness of the preaching of the gospel, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Exodus 15, I am the Lord that healeth thee. And so He is the Savior. Penal, substitutionary, blood, atonement. And as we behold the scene, we ask ourselves, why? Why would He do this? And one of the necessary answers to that question is found in verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, suffer? He suffered for lost sheep. Zechariah prophesied that the shepherd would be struck, and that's the image that is behind John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 reflects this very passage in Isaiah who his own self bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, 
by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why? Why did the suffering servant suffer? The answer is in our text. Jesus, the Son of God, suffered because of our own self-willed wandering, our sinful wills bound, fettered, and corrupt. What could be more clear than the contrast here between God's way and our way? His way of salvation and the way in which every sinner apart from Christ goes, which is the way of hell. And therefore, Jesus came and bore the hell of his people. Hence the necessity of dark Golgotha. He came for self-willed wanderers. But then fourthly, I want to give us some thoughts to ponder. Several thoughts as we have examined this text and we have seen together that he is the sin bearer, the substitute for sinners who came for self-willed wonders. I want to give you some thoughts to ponder. The first thought is this, the only right and adequate view of the atonement is that of substitution, Christ in our place. And how tragic it is that this is denied even now by churches calling themselves evangelical. You know, the changes that are being made in the church in our day, and I've seen it happen very, very rapidly within a few decades, the changes that we are seeing in doctrine and in worship is affecting life. The changes we make in doctrine and worship are going to be felt from generations generations from now will see the ill effects of those things unless God intervene. And so I warn this congregation never to lose this stress upon this essential doctrine as well as others. The church must preach it or lose it. We may, must make much of it or lose it. And every other view of atonement fails to see what sin deserves and fails to provide an answer for the removal of guilt. Listen, fellow sinner, there is no other way to be saved than this way. There is no other way but God's way. There is no other way than the way that God himself has made. Atonement through the blood of Christ. Have you trusted that Christ for salvation. There is no other Savior and no other way. And then a second thought, note well when you read Isaiah 53, the passage that we have focused on this morning, but almost the entirety of it, note well the violence of the scene, the violence of the wrath of God poured out upon him because you see, even though the suffering is physical and we do not minimize it, the greatest suffering was the emotional anguish of our Lord, the suffering in the depth of his soul, the anguish of Christ, the inconceivable unknown sufferings of the Son of God as he died in our place. He was forsaken of his Father in our place. 
So that if you read ahead in verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, or it pleased the Lord to crush him. He hath put him to grief. And trim no meaning away from the word pleased. It pleased the Lord to do this. Do you remember in the book of Exodus when Moses and the children of Israel are in Rephidim and they uh, have no water? And the Lord tells uh, Moses that he is to take his staff and strike the rock. But God says that when he strikes the rock, I will stand before you upon the rock. Al-Hatsur, upon the rock. God says, I will stand before you upon the rock. And you are to smite the rock. That is to say, Moses, representing God, takes the rod, in this case, the rod of divine anger and judgment, and he smites God. God smites God. And from the rock, the water of life flows. That is what happens when Jesus Christ goes to the cross. The rod of the divine anger against my sin strikes the shepherd so that from the cross, from his bleeding side, the water of life flows freely to those who will drink. In punishing his own son, the father seemed to do so, if I may say it, with his whole heart. I say it reverently, but God in counsel decreed this day, God the Father chose a people, the Son voluntarily came that he might be smitten and afflicted, struck by the Father in our place. And the Holy Spirit involved in all makes this blessing of this water of life, opening hearts that would drink this truth and reality and believe in this Savior. And how can this be? All because the Son of God was our sin bearer. As John Brown of Edinburgh put it, the value of the blood of Christ is the measure of the demerit of sin. The value of the blood of Christ is the measure of the demerit of sin. Only the Son of God, His infinite nature giving to His finite sufferings so that the infinite value of the, of the atonement could cover all of my sin and my iniquity. It was my sin that put him there, and by faith this enables me also to see. And do you see it too? Can you say, he loved me and gave himself for me? And moreover, this enables me to confess that he paid for my sins in full, that my guilt is removed forever, my relationship with God is restored, and my inheritance is eternally secured. We read in verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities." Lost friend, can you justify yourself in God's court of law? 
Will you be able to bear God's wrath and pay the price? Contemplate the sacrifice of Christ and the depth of it, the cost of His sacrifice. Stephen Carnock said most beautifully, the Father would have the most excellent person, one next in order to Himself and equal to Him in all the glorious perfections of His nature, die on a disgraceful cross and be exposed to the flames of divine wrath rather than sin should live and his holiness remain forever disparaged by the violations of his law. God seems to lay aside the bowels of a father and put on the garb of an irreconcilable enemy. Yes, that is what God the Father did so that you might not be his enemy. And this is why the blood avails for the greatest sins of the greatest sinners who trust in Jesus Christ. Yes, the greatest sins of the greatest sinners. If you turn to Christ and you trust in Him, your guilt has been removed in what Christ did. And the value of His atonement is applied to your soul. You know, this is why. My lost friend, you need to ask the question, to whom does Isaiah 53 refer? So many Jews have come to Jesus asking that question, numbers of them. I don't know if you've heard of Solomon Ginsburg. Solomon Ginsburg was a converted Jew who became um, a well-known missionary in Brazil. When he was a boy growing up in his Jewish home, he happened to see Isaiah 53 during one of the feast days that was being celebrated in their home. He saw Isaiah 53 there in Hebrew. He read it, and then he looked at his father, and he said to his father, Father, to whom does Isaiah 53 refer? And his father slapped him across the face. He never forgot that, and God used it because years later, a Christian missionary came and asked Ginsburg if he would come with him to hear a sermon on Isaiah 53 and he was converted, and God called him to preach, and he became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he preached Isaiah 53, and all of God's word, and the atonement of Jesus. He trusted Christ. His sins were forgiven. What about you? You hide your face from the man of sorrows as long as you can accomplish or add to your own salvation, as long as you think that, and you cannot. You can do nothing to save yourself, to atone for your sins, only Christ can do it. I love this little story that Charles Spurgeon taught. It comes out of his, uh, the second volume of his autobiography. It says, among the many clergy and ministers of religion whose lives were changed by the sermons, that is Spurgeon's sermons, was one ritualistic priest whose story Spurgeon thus narrates. Spurgeon then is talking about this high Anglican priest who came to him who thought he really had been a priest who could forgive sins. So Spurgeon says, he told me that he owned, owed everything to me because I had been the means of leading him to Jesus. He said he was only an humble vicar in the Church of England. So I asked what his line of teaching had formerly been. Very high, he replied, that is high Anglican. But I asked, did you pretend to forgive people's sins? Yes, he answered. Then I inquired, how did you get rid of the idea that you were a priest? 
Well, he said, I sincerely believe myself to be a priest until I read one of your sermons. That convinced me of my own state as a sinner. And the priesthood oozed out of me directly. Now I am trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and I point my congregation to Him alone. Well, it very well may be that someone listening to this sermon this morning, you need for the priest to ooze out of you. (laughs) That is to say, you're trusting in someone or something other than Jesus Christ to save you from sins. The old hymn writer said it so beautifully, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. That's the Savior. That's the one who saves. That's the one who redeems. That is the only one who can save us from our sins. And as we go through this season of the year, and perhaps peculiar emphasis is given to this, though the stress is here all the time, do you know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer and Savior? Do you trust in His precious blood, which alone satisfies the justice of God? And that's the point of Isaiah 53, and especially the verses that we have looked at this morning. And I am grateful. Are you grateful? And I trust Him. Do you trust Him? And I am saved by Him. Are you saved by Him? And I want to live for Him. Will you also live for Him? In my place, condemned, He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What? a Savior. Amen and amen.